Welcome to the Zeal Interestings podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from this week. I'm your host, Chris White. I'm joined this week by Adam Cuppy. Welcome, Adam. Hello, Chris. How are you? I'm doing excellent this Friday. How are you? I am fantastical. I'm glad. (laughs) Today, we're looking back at a conference talk that Adam gave at GoRuco in 2016. The conference talk is available on the Confreaks YouTube channel. We posted a link in the show notes. It was entitled Culture. Could you give us kind of a background on on what this talk was about? It seemed like it was comparing two different visions for culture. Yeah. So this actually came out of an image that I saw created by another author speaker named David Gray. And it was really interesting to see. And maybe we could even post this image or a link to this image in the show notes as well. Definitely. But it's a graphic that has two sides to it. On one side is a bunch of concentric circles, just like a hand drawing of you know the same outline of the same circle over and over and over again. And on the other side, it's a bunch of circles that loosely overlap or a little vague, but kind of formulate a really kind of um, a circle by and large, but you know it's not nearly as clean as the other one. It's many circles creating a larger circle. There we go. Yeah, many circles creating a larger circle. And underneath the uh, very tightly, very continuous single circle, it says cult. And on the other side, where it's a bunch of circles that are loosely overlapping, creating one much larger circle, it says culture. And I thought that was a really interesting and fascinating idea as far as the differentiation between those two states, that a cult and or a culture, uh, while they share very similar attributes and they feel very similar, can be considered radically different in their own way. So the talk, as I was sort of like exploring the dynamics of that emerged out of that. So more specifically, the talk is culture, but there's parentheses around the URE. So it's a play on cult against culture. And that's the breakdown. Gotcha. Awesome. That was great. I refreshed my memory on the talk uh, earlier today, and I thought there was a few parts that stood out to me. It seems like right away you lead off with uh, Tony Robbins. Yeah. That's a name that comes up a lot in our company. And he was talking about ego and ethnocentric or etho versus egocentric approaches. And I thought that that was a cool breakdown between satisfying your own needs and satisfying the needs of others, which satisfies your own needs in a way. Right. In 2006, 2007, I had been introduced to Tony Robbins and the company I was working for at the time had based a lot of their growth and success off of some early stuff that Tony Robbins had written about, um, specifically a book and a tape series called Personal Power. I think he wrote it in either the late 80s, early 90s. So the company had sent many of us off to a conference. And at the conference, he hits on one of these really important components of life, which is the understanding of what the six human needs are. And the six human needs, if I was to break them down, is Uh, The first is certainty, second, uncertainty, significance, love and connection, growth and contribution. The first four are really important because those are referred to as the basic human needs. And often to fulfill those basic needs, so certainty, uncertainty, significance, love and connection, the means through which you find fulfillment in those oftentimes is done through egocentric actions. You do things that really are serving yourself. Right. I'm going to take care of myself first. Exactly. Right. And then you get the fulfillment from that. Number five and number six, the last two, uh, which are growth and contribution, those are spiritual needs. And oftentimes to fulfill those, you take ethocentric actions, meaning you do things by fulfilling the needs of others. And the byproduct of fulfilling those two often leads to the fulfillment of your basic four. So it kind of creates this idea that growth and contribution um, are really the gateway to fulfilling all six needs. Awesome. Awesome. Love that. You moved on into kind of how a cult-like company is built around fear. 
and hierarchical organizations. Have you experienced like companies like that? Have you worked in, in worlds like that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a little bit of loose irony is that the organization that sent me, I think, was suffering from this a lot inadvertently, because I think there's a really fine line between cult-like behavior and having a really rich, diverse culture. And oftentimes what leads to this sense of, or the migration from a very rich culture where a lot of diversity of thought, a lot of diversity of approach, and then also the willingness to just kind of jump in where you see fit, that is often abandoned due to the fear that occurs while an organization is growing. So as the organization, you know, when an organization is small, let's say, you know, five or less people, even 10 or less people, you know, everybody kind of just works together and everybody sort of fills a need, takes care of tasks as they come up. But, you know, when we start to get into the, you know, let's say 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 range, what starts to happen is the sense of like, oh, we don't have this kind of harmonious interaction amongst each other. And so we need to create systems and processes that control one another in our own commensurate groups so that we have a greater degree of certainty that we're going to fulfill our ultimate outcome. And so it kind of goes back to this uh, basic needs and the egocentric needs and fulfilling those against what generally will start off an organization, which is growth and contribution. We want everybody to grow. We want to contribute greatly to a greater purpose. And again, slowly but surely, the need to control or the fear around losing control drives us to back to the basic needs. Right. So like in a very small organization, it's easy to kind of fulfill needs and serve people directly. But as you grow, like fear might cause you to add a bunch of hierarchy and systems that that replace that personal interaction and serving of like direct service of people you're working with. Yeah. And I think that some of the things or some of the feedback that I've gotten, not just based on this talk, but as far as my approach is concerned, and it's fair, which is this implication that what I'm implying is, is that structure and process is a bad thing. And that's not true. It's just that if we're analyzing the process that we're putting in place and asking ourselves, why are we doing that? And more specifically, what are we afraid of that's causing us to need to do that or have that feeling that we need to do it? And we check into that and identify, oh, it's because we need to feel certain. Got it. Then it might be a great opportunity to reflect and ask whether or not that's actually a good way to be doing this. Or, you know, is it okay that there's uncertainty here? I find that with a lot of companies, especially in our organization, that, you know, when we're approaching things, it's it's very important that you accept conflict and discontent as actually a great identifier that you're going to break through eventually and that your team is communicating. Right. You know, we, we see it so easily as a bad thing. And while if that is a pervasive problem that continues on well beyond the conversation, conversation, that's one thing, but also to see that, hey, like this is this is a sign that we're talking. This is a sign that we're communicating. This is a sign that we're rich of thought and diversity of approach. Like let's really embrace that and have processes that wrap that uncertainty and create certainty as a byproduct of it versus have processes that force certainty and disallow uncertainty to exist. Right, right. So exposing the pain points can feel painful, but if you create an environment where people are too afraid to share those pain points, then that's a bad path too, right? Exactly. And figuring out what these questions are. Sometimes when people ask questions, it exposes like a different question, right? Like, why are we doing it this way? It could be that a person asking like, why is this uncertain or why, uh, you know, am, I'm feeling fearful. What is the... Can you show me how this is going to be certain or how this is going to work or exposing those other questions? 
Right. Yes. Perfectly said. Cool. It was interesting to me. So, uh, and I think it was 2015, you gave this talk at Rocky Mountain Ruby. I was actually there. I heard that. I heard it before we even worked together. I was like a volunteer and listening to it that time. <laughs> right. And it seems like you've evolved how this talk works. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's pretty interesting. Like, um, what have you learned since you first gave the talk and how has it kind of grown? Yeah, that's a that's a really valuable question for me to reflect on. You know, looking back on it, so the original name of the talk was Culture Only Three Letters Away from Cult. And I felt like at the time, my approach was far more confrontational to the topic, saying that a cult is a horrendously bad thing and that we need to keep our eye out and our radars tightly focused on whether or not we're falling into that bucket. And when I worked to do it a year later for GoRuko, I was really reflecting a lot on those bits and pieces. And since then, it's been another year since then, looking back at the talk again, I'm realizing that I could even push farther and farther towards a more pragmatic view on the topic of cult versus culture. Because I do think that that line is really, really fine. And that by falling into more of a or leaning more towards a cult-like behavior, it doesn't necessarily imply that your organization is highly defunct. I think what it just needs to be is like a code smell. It needs to be something that you're paying very much attention to and asking yourself, are we moving farther and farther down a path that's driving us more towards uh, fulfilling egocentric needs? And are we losing sight of our greater and more ultimate purpose? And like with an organization like us, and especially this age in tech where there's a lot of underrepresented groups and individuals that tend to inadvertently and well... Uh, for unfortunately for some organizations very directly, but I think for many organizations indirectly, they just get cast aside or they feel excluded from the conversation. I think it's yeah. this is the reason why it's so critical that we know what that boundary looks like. And so again, if I was to iterate on the talk even further, since even two years ago, I would say just being more again more pragmatic about you know what are those key indicators, what are the things that you should look out for, but not to necessarily feel like if I fall into the category that that this is horrendously bad and you should if you're an employee you should run for the hills. Like I feel like I was implying before. Gotcha. So before you were more much more adversarial, and now you're like, well, you know, th- these are behaviors that uh, the organization might fall into. This is the danger of those behaviors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, Speaking of, uh, you know, you mentioned a code smell. You actually created a cool analogy for leadership and uh, as a test suite. Uh, I thought that was very, as a developer, it, it resonated with me for some reason. So tell me more about that. So a leader is a test suite and the members are the implementation. How does that work? Yeah. So the basic idea as far as approach from a, or, or, or the, my recommendation for an approach as a leader is concerned is to look more at being the test suite that asserts what should be true. And that again, can be a really slippery slope. And I think this is one of the reasons why that boundary between cult and culture is really fine. Because a lot of leaders, unfortunately, see their responsibility as being the ones that dictate how something's supposed to be done. And while oftentimes that may need to happen, it doesn't always have to happen. And in fact, we want to work against that need. So again, the idea that leadership is about being the test suite is simply saying, as a leader, our responsibility is to look at what the ultimate outcome as far as fulfilling the greater purpose is and identifying what defines success as far as that's concerned, so like a test might, but allowing your team to really dictate and drive the direction right. so that 
the implementation, if we use that, continue to use that analogy, that the implementation can be flexible and variable and diverse and unique and new and creative and also poor. And varying even, right? Like among employees. Absolutely. Exactly. Like it can be a highly diverse thing. And as leaders, we need to strive for that to really be okay. And instead, what we really need to put our hyper focus on is why are we doing this and what dictates whether or not we've done it successfully or not? I see. So, so you know, you could even throw it into more lingo and, and pull in the agile language and say you, you define the acceptance criteria for this, uh, for this story. 100%. There you go. Leaders define the acceptance criteria. That works. I like it. I like it a lot. Inclusion was a part of this talk. There was something you said that really put me in a new frame of mind and, and I really appreciated it. I said, instead of thinking, well, how do we meet these people's needs? Well, all you have to do is think like a woman. And instead of thinking that way, you should ask yourself, what does Karen need? I thought that that was a really great nugget of, of uh, thinking about things. Can you kind of describe like how that idea infected your brain and where, where it came from? Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess simply put, people are people and everyone's an individual. And we all come with a uniqueness that can't go unnoticed or underrepresented or unappreciated. And so I think one of the plagues in the, uh, regarding this topic is oftentimes based around the language that we use, that that becomes part of the problem. And, and this is being an example when we start to identify individuals as a part of a type and, and effectively remove their humanity and just make them a category, then we run into this real problem. And so if you get into the habit of calling, right. calling people out as individuals and saying, you know, this isn't about you trying to pretend to be someone else like this. Don't, you know, don't say stuff and don't think like a woman. That's just, that's just, it's just crap. I mean, it's just like such a bad <laughs> idea, right? I mean, it's just, it's so compartmentalizing. It's so, I, all of the bad stuff comes up with that. And it just makes it less about the individual that has needs. And I think similarly, it can work in the inverse as well. And I think that's equally as important. So yeah. in the talk, I also talk about this idea that, um, or to remember that, you know, your managers are striving to fulfill the same bucket of needs that you're striving to as well. And we can't forget that. If we forget that, that's where a lack of empathy starts to emerge. And the best we can do is to sympathize. So if you really want to empathize, it's first and foremost to remember that we are all people and we are all trying to fulfill those needs of certainty, uncertainty, love and connection, significance, co growth and contribution. We're all trying to do that. And if we know that and we ask ourselves, well, what does Chris need? Like, what is it that he's striving for? What is he fighting for? What is he trying to achieve in his life? What's his, what purpose is he trying to fulfill? then it creates a deeper empathy. It's like, well, let me, I now need to really answer that question. What is it that he needs? And, and very rarely is the answer to that question, oh, he needs, you know, he needs to put me down. No, but he might need to feel significant and he might need to be more certain. And maybe I'm not the one to change it, but if I could, yeah. What could I do to help that cause? What could I do to make him feel significant or help him move from significance or from certainty into a state of feeling like he's really contributing to my life and the other people that he manages, right? Like, what could I do to help that? And I can't do it if I say, you know, he's a manager and managers are bad or managers are jerks. Like, right. Managers don't think about how these implementation things work. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like, same problem. Same problem. Same problem. 
So, so you know, on the on the developer side, it's easy for for people to like to say, "Oh, that's the sales team; they're not even human." Or the managers, "Oh, they just want to check off lists and get things done." But maybe maybe looking at it from more of a perspective of, "Hey, the so and so manager has a lot of pressures coming from these directions. How can I I meet his needs and?" meet my needs as well and just use empathy towards that individual instead of a group and uh, putting them in a bucket. Well, and to remember that sometimes you can't reconcile that. Maybe that's something that ultimately is not in your control. But I believe that that is more rare than we come have come to believe it to be. And so we end up in a place of angst, anxiety, frustration. And frankly, we, we end up fighting ego to ego instead of looking for places in which I could contribute to somebody that I am the most adverse to. In fact, instead, what I do is I try and combat their significance by trying to be more significant. Well, if I say it louder, if I say it more directly, if I put them down faster than they can put me down, then I feel more significant. We run into the same problem. And you end up in, again, a place of real ego versus, hey, I don't agree with you. I don't. But I, but I do want to understand where you're coming from, even though I don't agree with you at all. And, and in that state, I can look for places where I can contribute to your life. And from that spot, then we're really finding a way to grow and finding a real way to contribute to each other. And with the significance problem, sometimes people just want to feel like they are listened to, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so starting with empathy, even if you don't find a solution to like a way to help them with individual problems, just understanding their problems can lead you a long way. Yep. There's a talk I gave recently called Difficult Conversations. And in there, an observation that I realized in kind of talking and figuring this out was that understanding does not imply acceptance. Just, just because you understand them doesn't mean you accept what they believe. I see. But once you understand them, you can now begin to fundamentally empathize with them. And the empathy is coming from understanding their needs. That's good. That's good. It's almost like you gave a talk about it. It's almost like I gave a talk about it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's come back to the end. At the end, you kind of give a series of questions to ask about your organization to determine whether you're a more cult-like organization or if you are growing culture. I won't make you repeat them all because people can just listen to your talk. But if you were to leave people with maybe like one or two questions that they should really be asking themselves to kind of trigger these conversations or trigger this kind of change, uh, what would it be? Well, there's five questions. Yeah. And I, I would definitely recommend, I would recommend for anybody to, to you know, hear the five. And I don't think these necessarily are an, an all-inclusive list, but these are the ones that I have chosen to use to address this challenge as a leader in our organization at Zeal. And so just briefly, I'll, I'll, I won't go over the details of the five, but I'll just say them. So the first is, are both leaders and members empowered to affect change? Number two is, are the leaders and members held accountable equally? Third is, are members punished for asking why? Number four is, are you fulfilling your own needs? And five is, do your core values align with the organization? So the two that I, I think are the most valuable for most people, at least to help identify where you stand, is the first, are both leaders and members empowered to affect change? Yeah. And while there might not be total equality, we want equity as far as that's concerned. And so if you look at your organization, you say, you know what, every single decision that requires action has to go up a chain that generally will indicate that the answer to that question would be no. 
that we you know clearly we're not impact we're not empowered right a lot of organizations when they go for this through this phase of constriction that's one of the control mechanisms they create which is a lack of ability to pull the trigger to take to act to take full action right i mean yeah the team can discuss what's best they can make a proposal and a recommendation but then at the end of the day they can't actually do anything about it so if so if somebody in management or the executive team just simply says no or just never answers then the team is left at a stalemate. Um, and I will say in our organization, we have definitely experienced this as a problem in our own growth. And this is the question I ask, which is, what is our team empowered to affect change? Can they actually create the return that they see to be valuable in the organization? And in fact, on the whiteboard to my right, I've got seven other core values or, or kind of principles that I have written down over time. And one of them is to give authority to everyone. Right. And there, yes, there can be checks and balances. Yes, there can be boundaries. But ultimately, to empower the whole team. So that's number one. Right. Do people have agency? Do people have agency? Wow, you're so succinct. You need to write my talks here. <laughs> you're just... you're, you'll write them in bulk. Right. I'll, I'll simmer them down to uh, you know inspirational wall quotes. This is good. I want inspirational wall quotes. This is great. That's the name of our blog, Chris. Let's make a blog called Inspirational Wall Quotes, yep. where I'll just vomit ideas and you turn them into actual thought that is digestible. I love this. There we go. And we'll put a very like we'll put like a, a nice vista or like a mountain. Yep. And you have to have one large word in the middle, <laughs> courage, and then, you know, a pithy statement below it to uh, to follow it up. Absolutely. Oh, this is the future of zeal right here. <laughs> pithy statements. I like it. I like it a lot. I like it a lot. So people need agency. People need to have authority to do things, you know, with, within constraints that make sense to the organization. Uh, and I've appreciated that about my role at zeal. You know, creating this podcast has been an adventure, and uh, I very much appreciated that I didn't have to necessarily ask permission to do it. Absolutely. Uh, it was more like, how can we support you? How can we make this a, a success? And I've been very grateful for that. Yeah. And and again, you know, just to kind of echo, it doesn't mean that there's not checks and balances, right? There's doesn't mean that, that you have free agency at all times as much as it is, hey, there just needs to be some measure. This goes into the second, which is our leaders and members held accountable equally, is that there needs to be accountability for the decisions that we're all making as a team individually, collectively, within our groups, and that needs to not be exclusive to just the team or to just the executive team. It needs to be everybody has that sort of accountability mechanism in place. I like that. Uh, so, yeah. And it's awesome. It's, it's awesome when it happens because great things like this come out of it. So Definitely. Uh, you are... You are a great example for that, for sure. Thank you. The other one that kind of goes hand in hand, and I would say this is the other maybe important one, which is, are members punished for asking why? Yes. Uh, and this just goes back to a very simple principle of, are you allowed to question the direction and the approach? It doesn't mean, and to be very clear, it doesn't mean that you should always have the ability to affect or change the direction. But if you end up punished for asking why something is being done some way or for just trying to gain a better sense of understanding around the topic or the approach, that can definitely push an organization in the wrong direction if, if you are being punished or an, or an individual is being punished for that. You know, and at the same time as if you're asking why, you know, five, six, seven, eight times around the same thing and you're just 
and you're getting the same answer and ultimately it's just that you don't like the answer, that's a different thing. That's called being obnoxious. It can be called being obnoxious. While at the same time is, it can also be a really great sign and an indication for both parties, yourself and the people that you work with to indicate, well, maybe maybe this organization isn't fulfilling your needs as much as it should if you feel like you're not either getting the answers you want or it's not going in the direction you see as being the most valuable or aligned to the purpose that you have in your life and it has an its, right? So again, it just kind of goes back to these are not hard and fast rules. These are just smells or indicators that you know you might want to question, are we going the right direction? Are we moving too far towards a, that kind of cult-like behavior? Or are we continuing to stay and maintain this really moderate balance? Yeah, it seems like that's a hard balance to maintain and you have to continually ask these questions of yourself. Sounds exhausting. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it can be. And I think that's probably the hurdle that a lot of companies, the challenge a lot of organizations go through and then they give up, right? Is that they look at this as like, dude, it's exhausting asking these things. It's exhausting, you know, trying to address these problems. It's, It's exhausting to bring everybody together and know that there's likely to be conflict or at least difference of strong differences of opinion. It can be really tiresome. So let's not do it because at the end of the day, we want to get to action more quickly. And while that shouldn't also go, like we shouldn't set that aside either, the desire to move and to fulfill outcomes, but just to recognize like the more time and energy that an organization and the groups in that organization put into working it through and really working together and empathizing with one another and understanding what the purpose is and the needs, like the more and more we do that, the more and more together we become, yet we still maintain our individuality. We continue to maintain that kind of collective cultural diversity. um, And we allow for the richness and the real asset and value proposition that that is permitted by that action to emerge. Yeah, definitely. And avoiding that drone-like behavior. Asking the why helps you avoid being a simple executor of commands, right? Asking the why allows an individual to understand motivations and be creative, right? If I understand the whys of, of why we're doing things, then I can come up with you know new and novel approaches. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Very cool. Well, I think that that's a pretty good place to wrap up. Is there any parting words of, of love or wisdom that you want to give our audience? Uh, I just, I guess I just encourage everybody to, to really know what you, what drives you, like what, what really excites you. Like when you're home alone after the work is done and you, you know, sitting there really reflecting on your own life, you know, like what's the thing that really just makes your heart sing, makes you excited, makes you passionate and to know that you have the right to that, that you have the right to pursue your passion and your dream, and that there are always going to be organizations that will align with you and will allow you to explore and fulfill that part of yourself. And in addition to that is to know that there are probably more than one. And so if you're a part of an organization where you feel aligned, but you just don't feel like you have a voice, just know that there's probably other organizations out there that might give you that opportunity as well. And so don't be afraid of it. Don't don't be afraid of the uncertainty and also just know who you are and what you want. And an organization will love you for it eventually. That's fantastic. Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> that probably was an unfortunate like disqualifier, but uh yeah, they they will. No, they will. Like they will. They will. They will. They will. They will. Absolutely. 
I really appreciate that. I do feel like, you know, when I hear that from people around me, it is empowering to me as an individual to like know that there's obviously organizational goals. We will pursue them, but that the people around me genuinely, I I do feel like the people around me genuinely want me to pursue what what I'm passionate about. And that's that's a great feeling. It's a feeling that I would love other people to have. Absolutely. Me too. All right. Me too. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, sharing with us. And I look forward to maybe doing this again in the future. Yeah. So thank you everyone for listening. If you want more interestings, please sign up for our newsletter at codingzeal.com slash interestings or follow us on Twitter at codingzeal. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.